Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Hit your money goals without switching platforms. Download SoFi's all-in-one super app for industry-leading APY. Great loan rates and stock trading. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank, NANMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday version of the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined by Elizabeth Young. That would be EY from SoFi today. Dan Nathan, traveling for work, working on some big deals, as they say, really, really big deals. By the way, Dan had an amazing conversation with Gene Munster about all the tech earnings on OK Computer this week. Check it out. Subscribe. Smash the like button. It will drop on Tuesday morning. That's tomorrow. So go to the OK Computer feed and follow it. Because you know what? A lot of things happening here. You got to be you got to be focused, got to be laser focused on all the different shows you're watching at the Risk Reversal Media site. Also, I want to thank everyone, Elizabeth, that joined the CME Challenge. Amazing turnout. We thank you. We hope you enjoy the hats. Good luck, as my people say. And today, EY, we had a great conversation with Reese Williams, CFA Chief Strategist at Spouting Rock Asset Management. That's all the housekeeping. How are you? I'm good. Wait, is the challenge over or did it just start? No, 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 no. The challenge is just beginning. The oh, challenge began last evening. The challenge ah. starts in earnest uh-huh, uh-huh. this and week. And here we By are way, on a Monday again, Dan traveling for the mm-hmm. second Monday in a row, leaving us to our own devices. Yes. Risky proposition, Mr. Nathan, leaving these two to do whatever they want. He, on he, a recorded he, microphone. He clearly has confidence in us. He knows that you know we're mature yeah. enough that we will not embarrass him, hopefully. I think he's at like some money show or fin show or something show. I'm not oh. sure. I was going to say, are we sure he's traveling for work? Because a lot of times when he says he's traveling, he's like at a football stadium or at mm. a concert. But anyway. Well, I think I think there's like an, an amalgamation. I think there's a joining of the two. Speaking of things coming together... Mm. 
Um, you know what's coming together? As it turns mm. out, the two-year yield and the 10-year <laughs> yield coming together. Good, good segue. Nice segue. <laughs> in a major way. And again, I want to give you kudos. Uh, you said, I think you'll be surprised at how quickly this thing re-steepens. And as we're sitting here now, um, I don't know. I mean, we're about, what, 15 or so base, maybe less than that, which is remarkable 13. when you think about it. We were 105 in the not-too-distant future. Mm-hmm. Or past, uh, I think I, I think actually intraday it hit 110. I might be wrong about that, but in any event, yeah, we we got down to 12 basis points inverted between the twos tens this morning as the 10 year crept above five percent. Uh, that happened a little bit last week as well, but uh, really decidedly crept above five percent today. Uh, I think it went back down now, so don't quote me on that for when this actually drops. However. The interesting part about this re-steepening is what you'll hear from the bulls, the the sort of rebuttal that we'll get from the bulls is that, well, it's happening because the 10-year went up, not because the two-year went down. Usually the re-steepening happens because the two-year went down as the Fed cuts rates in response to some sort of terrible thing that's happened and they're trying to save it all. This is actually because the 10-year is rising on the heels of growth being stronger than we expected. The consumer is still spending, retail sales strong, inflation still up, blah, 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 blah. So I get it. I understand that the reason the re-steepening is happening is because of the long end, not the short end. Here's the rub. Both of them are still high, and they are much higher than what we've been used to for the last five to 10 years. And I know everybody's been saying that too, so I want to put a little bit more detail around that. Why does it matter? Well, because if you're a company, if you're a corporation that has borrowed money to finance your operations or to finance growth, most corporate debt maturities are somewhere between five to seven years, right? The average maturity, I think, on the high yield index is probably six something. The average maturity on an investment grade corporate index might be a little bit shorter or longer than that. In any event, they're borrowing somewhere between five and 10 years, let's call it that. If they've done that, in the last five or 10 years, chances are the debt that they are paying for is at much lower rates than what it's going to be at if they have to refinance that debt in the next 12 to 24 months. And we happen to know that the corporate maturity wall is getting steeper next year and definitely into 2025. So that's a big reason why it matters. It'll affect small cap companies more so. However, this re-steepening is usually something that gives the market consternation. It's usually the thing that tells us that something bad is imminent. That is still muddy right now. However, I think that this is definitely something to pay attention to. And the rates being this high uh, are going to be an issue for companies in the months to come. Every time I have consternation, I eat Cheerios. It seems to do the <laughs> trick for me. i got to find a better word. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. No, but it's interesting, and I'm so with you. Obviously, listen, you know, the bulls and the bears are dug in. The bulls will see this as a positive, the bears as a negative. You know, I, I clearly favor the bear side. I, I'd like to think I'm not dogmatic, but I look at this and say, all the things you said on the bull side of the equation are accurate, and I'm not suggesting you are that. You're just sort of amplifying what they say. But the reality is, yields are going higher because the market's demanding a higher yield to buy our debt. I mean, it's a supply and demand thing. So- Yes, I think the market is more resilient than I thought. Yes, the consumer continues to spend regardless of whether or not they should be. But the reality of the situation is there are less buyers and the buyers that are there are demanding a higher yield. And that's manifesting itself in this yield. And if you think about what's transpired over the last now three weeks or so, historically, you would have seen a flight to quality in the form of United States treasuries making yields go lower. And you saw that for all of two days 
when I think 10 year yields fell to about four, five, five, or maybe a little bit less, somewhere between four and a half percent and 4.55 percent. Yet here we are approaching, if not getting through that 5% level, which I think it doesn't mean anything technically, but the sound bells, the the alarm bells are going to go off in a lot of different desks. And don't think for a second, we'll talk about the small and the regional banks, that this doesn't have impact on them as well. The other thing I want to say about tightening is, so Jerome Powell spoke last week at the Economic Club of New York. And one of the things that stuck with me from that conversation was that he said something along the lines of there's still probably a lot of tightening in the pipeline. So we've talked about long and variable legs. He actually made the point that the long and variable legs uh, were a phrase that was coined back when central banks were not as transparent. Now that central banks are much more transparent, the market tends to react before they actually make the move. So those long and variable legs may not be as applicable, but still a lot of tightening in the pipeline. The other point I would make is that a lot of times you hear from people who are more optimistic that, well, the Fed is going to be done. They're going to have to be done, and done means dovish. That's not true. I think Steve Leisman is actually the one who said that. Done does not mean dovish, something along those lines. The other point is that even if they are done, or even if they start to project cuts at some point in 2024, the bond market is continuing to tighten for them. So it doesn't even matter that they stopped hiking. The bond market is hiking for them, not to mention we've still got this tapering program that's going on in the background. So even if the Fed stops raising rates, stops talking about necessarily their policy rate going up, the market continues to tighten financial conditions, continues to constrict capital, and continues to put the screws to a lot of money that had been flowing around in the system, and I think eventually continue to put the screws to consumers. It's interesting you say that, and I'm not an economist. I say this all the time, but I said on Fast Money last week, and I actually believe this to a pretty large degree. The Fed could decide to cut rates tomorrow, and maybe they'll have a one-day impact on the 10-year yield or the longer duration bonds, but it only lasts about that. I think yields are going higher regardless at this point. They control the front end. They control nothing else. And to your point, the bond market's doing a lot of the work for them, and it's out of their control, quite frankly. And given, again, QT, given the fact that Bank of Japan clearly not buying our treasuries, Bank of China clearly not buying our treasuries, and you know it's and the Federal Reserve is no longer monetizing that. I mean, who's the buyer of last resort that can buy of the magnitude necessary to keep yields lower? They're just not there. Mom and pop ain't doing it for them. I mean, around the edges it helps, but it doesn't make a dent. Now, I am not a particularly light sleeper. I, I sleep through pretty much anything. Although if the phone rings, I'll wake up. <laughs> For some up. reason, it's that kind of... does not surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> but my sense is you're probably on a hair trigger. And last night, you woke up for some odd notion, and you woke up to a certain headline. And I'm going to read it to you because you and I have discussed this. Not this deal, but we've discussed this. Oh, Chevron to buy Hess for $53 billion in the latest oil mega deal. Shocking. Chevron agreed to buy Hess Corp for $53 billion, a deal aimed at boosting production growth as the United States oil industry bets on an enduring future for fossil fuel. Oh, an enduring future. Where have we heard that before? In an all-stock transaction, Chevron will pay $171 per share for Hess, 10% premium, blah, blah, blah. The acquisition will give Chevron a significant foothold in Guyana. I haven't been the South American country that is one of the world's newest oil producers. Now, we have said this for a while, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, but I have said 
the best thing that's happened to the oil industry over the last, let's call it six or seven years. Number one, ESG, counterintuitive, but you know what? It was a wake-up call for those companies. It forced them to focus on their business and be better operators. It worked. Number two, when crude oil, the front month went to minus $39 a barrel, that was a slap in the face that the entire industry needed to figure out, again, production, focusing on their businesses, understanding margins, all those different things. No question about it. And the third thing is the Biden administration, who effectively ran on the platform, and this is not political, go back and look, we want to put the oil and gas industry out of business. All those three things would seem negative. We're all positives. And here we are, ExxonMobil making that deal for Pioneer Natural. That was a $60 billion deal. Uh, and now this deal today. And again, as I said, with the Exxon deal, it's the first and won't be the last. And here we are two weeks later, whammo. My point is, if these companies thought that the, the extinction of their business was around the corner, they wouldn't be making deals of this magnitude. And it just speaks to the foothold and the strength of the balance sheets and how well these companies are run. I know you're bullish on the space. What does this say to you, Elizabeth? Well, first of all, I want you to know that I am actually quite a sound sleeper and a a vivid dreamer. I fall asleep pretty quickly. I stay asleep pretty easily. (laughs) So for me to wake up in the middle of the night, I happen to look at my phone and see a headline about yet another transaction in the oil space. So here's the thing. What happened, I think, and I like your point about we got to negative $40 oil. I mean, it happened for a, a sniff, but still, it was an odd occurrence, and it was a signal. Companies and boards and leadership at companies are tasked with, especially publicly traded companies, I mean, all companies, of course, but publicly traded companies, because they're in the court of public opinion, are tasked with being good stewards of capital. So number one, they have to be good stewards of capital, control their costs, they have to spend in the right places. And part of what they should spend on is that old adage of if you're not growing, you're dying. So a lot for a long time, there was this belief that fossil fuel companies were dying and there was no reason to own them, there was no reason to get excited about them. And to your point, they have really changed things. And now we're looking at, which is a point I've made, I think last week on On the Tape, there are two different ways to do M&A. You have strategic M&A and you have financial M&A. Financial M&A is the bad kind because it's usually meaning that somebody needed to be saved. You're bailing them out. You know, Maybe a bigger company is gobbling up competition, but only because the competition would have died and, and you don't want to lose uh, the entire industry. So this is strategic. This remains strategic M&A where you've got companies trying to grow their presence, trying to grow their own abilities and increase their competitive moat. That to me, sends the same signal that, you know what, we think this industry is okay, and the companies are healthy enough, they've got enough capital sitting around to engage in these transactions and move forward. So again, this is something that there's a lot of different reasons, I think, to be bullish on energy stocks right now. Now, they've seen a decent run, you know, obviously had a tough beginning of the year, but they've seen a decent run, but bullish on energy stocks in the sense of this is also a shareholder-friendly action sort of indirectly, because if it's growing the capital base, if it's growing the company's strength, you want to be a shareholder in the future of that growth. It's fascinating, though, that a deal of this magnitude, remember it was Chevron, I believe, two falls ago, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it was, but my point is, I think it was, maybe it was last fall, maybe it was this time last year when they announced, I believe, a $75 billion with a B dollar stock buyback. Now, oddly enough, that sort of signified or that if you go back and look, that was a top tick for the stock. But the point is, again, the balance sheets of these companies, I don't want to say they're pristine, but they're the best they've ever been in the history of the energy space because they were forced 
to have better balance sheets. Now they're putting those balance sheets to work. And I think it's extraordinarily shareholder friendly. And I think it's very friendly for the space. So I continue to be bullish for at energy. I, I don't care what's going on with yields. I don't care what's going on with the dollar. I understand that things are slowing down. It's a supply demand thing. It's also a geopolitical thing. And the, the stars are aligning for this energy space, I think, to continue to do well, Elizabeth. This well, is it's right. More, it, it's actually, it's more a supply thing than a demand thing. Because yes. that's the other thing that, that, that's the pushback you get from people. Well, you're being inconsistent. If you're, if you're bearish on the economy, how can you think that energy demand is going to increase and drive prices higher? That's not, well, that's not what I think. I think that we're going to continue to have supply shocks and supply constraints because that's the lever that countries and companies have to pull. So that I think that doesn't go away. Now, does demand get weaker in the case of what we expect to happen if the economy slows down, if you see a contraction or a recession? Yes, of course, demand gets weaker. And we're already seeing airlines suffer because of where gas prices are. So there are a number of forces that will that will drive demand down for a period of time. But I don't think that that removes the supply shocks that have gone into the system and that I think will remain in the system. A hundred percent. Could not agree with you more. It is a supply thing. We've talked about that. We've had Halima Croft on. She has mentioned it. Paul Sankey has talked about this. You've talked about it. And I think the market's starting to wake up to it. Now, this is right in your wheelhouse. So this is like, you know, a 3-0 fastball that you have the green light for. So sit on this pitch. (laughs) Wall Street Journal, never been a worse time to buy instead of rent. The cost of buying a home versus renting one is at its most extreme since at least 1996. The average monthly new mortgage payment is 52% higher than the average apartment rent. The last time the measure looked out of whack was in 2008 housing crash. Even then, the premium only peaked at 33% in the second quarter of 06. So I don't know what to tell you. I know you watch these things extraordinarily close closely. And here we are talking about levels we haven't seen probably longer than 96, but we'll go back to 96. This is a topic I get really turned up about because there are are so many different viewpoints. And and then there's this whole idea of the American dream, which includes owning property, owning a piece of land, whatever, whatever you call it. There are times if you're not forced to buy a house right now, don't do it. Because you've got all-time low affordability, just in not even just in the form of rates being this high, but prices being still overly inflated. And all it takes is you if you've got a neighborhood, I actually saw a tweet about this last week and I thought it was really clever. Unfortunately, I don't remember who it was from, and I won't be able to find it again. <laughs> but it said something about <laughs> a house in a neighborhood that was listed for, I think it was seven hundred thousand dollars. And the idea or the, the speculation was that the rest of the houses in the neighborhood that were occupied were occupied by people thinking that their home was worth a million dollars. And then the minute that that home sells for $700,000, guess what? All the comps in the neighborhood come down too. And that it only takes one little move for that to happen. And ho- houses are something that are only worth as much as somebody is willing to pay for them. And right now, because we have this stall in the existing housing market, there are not a lot of people out there willing to pay these prices or willing to borrow money at these rates. So housing right now, again, if you're not forced, I understand there are people who are forced for a whole host of reasons. Maybe you've been relocated, your family grew, you need to upsize, downsize, whatever it is. I totally get that. And in in which case, sure, do it and probably refinance later. But if you're not forced into it, I think there's still this clinging to some sort of ideal of, but owning a home 
is the answer to the American dream and owning a home is the answer to, to building wealth. Sure, over time, owning real estate can definitely be the answer to building wealth. It can be a hedge against inflation. It can be a lot of different things. Today, it, it was a hedge against inflation three years ago. Today, it's no longer a hedge against inflation. Inflation is coming down and home prices have not come down. Eventually, they will follow suit. But right now, it's not a hedge against inflation. And it's something that if you're trying to make a good financial decision for yourself, for your family, renting is not a bad thing. It gets such a bad rap. And you know, I sit here in New York City, everybody rents in New York City. <laughs> renting gets such a bad rap. You've got flexibility. You've got time to wait out this market. You've got time to figure out what you really want, what you really need. You've got time to watch the rates come down. So anyway, that I'll, I'll stop there. And the no. last thing I'll say is there's a, bu- there's a bunch of young of, of young investors, or I, I mean, I'm kind of a millennial, but there are a lot of young people who have been told or who believe that all they have to do to get rich is buy houses, flip them and sell them and finance the difference in between. And that will help you in some circumstances. Yes, that's been true. And I'm sure everybody's heard that story about the person who bought houses in 2009, flipped them, became a millionaire very quickly overnight. I'm telling you that would not happen today because prices are too high, the borrowing rates are high, it's going to be a lot harder to get rich on today's housing market if you're doing it all starting right now. Who's saying that uh, genie in the bottle song, like Chardet or somebody? Christina Aguilera. Christina Aguilera. Yeah, well, (laughs) my point, by the way, we share a birthday, not you and I, Christina Aguilera and I. Yeah. Well, Well, I am Brad Pitt. It's a laundry list. Wow. But I mentioned genie in a bottle because that genie is now well out of the bottle and it's not coming back. By the way, our crack producer, Jacob, uh, in North Carolina, found that tweet, and we will put it in wow. the show notes for you Thank folks. You. So check that out. Wow, look at that. Good Magnum PI over there. Way to go, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> sort of looks like Magnum PI. Small banks look to shrink their way back to health. Now, good luck with that. By the way, funny thing about shrinkage is the more you think about it, the worse it gets, but that's probably for another show. But I've been looking at the KRE for quite some time. You got a kick out of that, didn't you? And the KRE, by the way, just let's just sort of talk about this quickly. In April of 2020, the KRE got down to about 29 or so. Now, obviously, that was uh, it's sort of at the peak fear of COVID. COVID lasted, but that was sort of the, obviously, the market was getting crushed back then. KRE rallied, I think by January of 22, it was a $71 instrument. Now, things got interesting, obviously, this year. When Silicon Valley Bank, when they had the small and regional bank crisis in the spring, the KRE went down to about, I want to say it got down to 34 and a half or thereabouts. We have since rallied and we traded up to around 49 in the middle of this summer in August. Well, guess what's happening? As we're sitting here today, the KRE is sort of round tripping this entire thing. It closed, I think, at 39 and change on Friday, probably indicated lower. For those that care, this ETF is basically an equal weight ETF, effectively. MT Bank, Truist, First Horizon, Huntington Bank shares, Citizen, Zions, you've heard all the names before. They're all in this ETF. Of course, the problem is with the, the bond market move, these stocks are starting to come under pressure. And we've seen it. Key Corp said it would become a smaller, simpler company. I don't know what that means. PNC to lay off thousands of employees. I know what that means. Truist to, down, to downsize their books with lower returns. Citizens recently said they would exit the auto loan business. Auto loan business. 
and continue to scale back its mortgage businesses. It's all happening right before our eyes. This is what we talked about. You and I talked about this back in the spring. And we said, you know, guess what? Too big to fail. Well, it's happening right before our eyes. These small and regional banks are going to get squeezed. You're going to start to see it in their earnings. It didn't happen as quickly as I thought. It's happening now. Thoughts on this? Because I think it has far-reaching ramifications. Yeah. Well, I mean, a a very simple, and this is sort of tongue-in-cheek, but they're not abandoning product lines because they were wildly profitable. Right. Obviously, they're walking away from some product lines or or forms of lending because maybe they were sucking life out of the company. And I don't think it's any surprise either. I mean, auto loans. So just just think back to how this all happened. Remember when used cars and trucks were the biggest problem we had? It was that prices were astronomical. You had to drive states away in order to get the one car that you wanted and you waited three months to find it and all all these different things that we hadn't heard about cars for a long time. And now you've probably got a lot of people out there underwater on a car loan, which is a loan that you definitely don't want to be underwater on because you own a depreciating asset. The water just gets deeper. <laughs> so it's not a good place to be. So people stopped borrowing money and uh, for cars and used car prices came way down. So probably not as profitable of a product line for those banks anymore. Mortgages we just covered. I'm not going to get back into that and get myself all excited. But there's a lot going on in the regional bank space that continues to put pressure on them. There hasn't yet been great news that said, oh, okay, you know what, that's going to help them a lot, aside from the Fed saying, we will give you a loan until the prices of these bonds <laughs> recover. But And that's the only thing that's happened, right? They got saved from that piece of it. We're going to continue hearing about the pressure on them. We're going to probably talk about balance sheet health, which ones were positioned okay, which ones were not positioned okay. And to bring this whole conversation full circle, remember what I said in the beginning of the conversation about oil companies, there's good M&A and there's bad M&A. Oil companies are currently engaging in good M&A for a strategic purpose. I'm willing to bet that in the financial space, some of these smaller and regional banks, you're going to start hearing about the bad M&A, which is the financial M&A, because somebody needed to be saved. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? You remember that because, of course, you starred in your middle school or high school's production of Wizard of Oz. That's right. I'm not a witch at all. One of my best friends, Stacy, played Glenda the Good Witch. Stop it. (laughs) Do we keep in touch with Stacy? Of course, yes. She she and I actually were birthday buds. She's the day after me. Look at that. Mm -hmm. Which, which those of you who've been paying attention, means that her birthday is on the 4th of July. Yes. Well, no, we we know that. We we wish you a happy birthday every year, if if you don't recall. We, mm-hmm. we're, and, we're, and we're very sincere in that. Now, I'm going to say this, and it, it's going to make me wince a little bit, um, so I apologize. Santa but Claus this rally? Is a, no, 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 no. <laughs> I refuse. That one I refuse to use. Um, but, you know, somebody coined the term Magnificent Seven. Now, I, I am mortified by that because the movie, I believe it was 1960, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been a little later than that. But again, all some of my favorite, Charles Bronson, Neil Brenner, Steve McQueen, Robert Vaughn. I mean, a laundry list. And of course, Eli Wallach was one of the bad guys. It's a wonderful movie. Now that everybody says Magnificent Seven in terms of these seven stocks, it really just, it hurts me at a, at a, like, at the, at my core, at a soulful level. But people talking about it. So let's, you and I talk about it real quick. Um, these stocks, they're on deck in terms of earnings and they better come through because they are a lion's share of what's been going on in terms of this market. I mean, say what you want, 
but the market has been supported by the relative strength, or the I shouldn't say relative strength, the outperformance of these names. Now, we're seeing it with NVIDIA. I know you're not playing stock market, but NVIDIA has clearly rolled over a bit. Apple, to a certain extent, has rolled over a little bit. You say if you want to throw Tesla in there, that's showing some, some struggle signs here. It's going to be fascinating to see what Facebook has to say, what Google has to say, and what Amazon has to say in terms of earnings. And if, in fact, we start to lose the generals, Elizabeth, what it means for the broader market. What I think is going to be really interesting about this group of stocks is that they've moved in unison based on AI, based on just enthusiasm, whatever it was. And and actually fascinating. Isn't NVIDIA still up like 180% on the year, yeah. even, even with what it's given back? So what I think is going to be interesting, and earnings may be part of the catalyst that does this, is you've got companies in there that are driven by very different things. Obviously, all of them dependent in some way, shape, or form on the consumer. But the way that the consumer uses Amazon is very different from the way that the consumer affects NVIDIA. And I think you're going to start to see the stocks pull away from each other. I'm not going to make any predictions about who's going to do well and who's going to do poorly. But you've got, I mean, Meta in there as effectively an advertising and social media company. You've got Amazon in there as a consumer products company for the most part. You've got uh, NVIDIA, obviously, that's down the supply chain for other things. You've got Apple. We're all kind of stuck into this ecosystem. with. So I think that they're going to start being affected in very different ways by the way that this plays out. The reason this earnings season is so important, and I know we say every earnings season is important, and this will be the most important one until the next one, but the reason this one is so important is because it's possible that this could, if we eke out a very small positive growth number, this could mark the end of the earnings recession, in which case, if you look at the sequence of events, that means that we've had a stock market pullback, so we had the bear market last year, we've had the earnings recession, the next piece, the third and final piece of that puzzle is the economic contraction. Now, if everything continues on that same sequence and we don't get stopped or, or misguided in the meantime, the economic contraction may not be so bad. We had a stock market pullback that was kind of cute. We had an earnings recession that was equally cute. And then we might have a little contraction in the economy. However, this is also happening at a time where we're having a, a pretty decent, now getting to be a bigger pullback in the market there's a chance that the market is sniffing something out bigger than what we've already seen. So you've got this earnings season that might mark the end of it by you know 0.7% growth, but what if it's a head fake? And I think that's the thing that we have to think about and look forward into 2024 in the sense of you've still got earnings growth expectations for double digits, cal- calendar year 2024. That seems exorbitantly high given where revenue expectations are. And I just would be very careful to declare victory on an earnings recession and declare victory on the sequence of events that, okay, we just have to have this little tiny slowdown in the economy and then we wash our hands clean and we move on. I'm going to declare a victory on this podcast. I'm going to leave by saying, (laughs) in terms of economic data, we have flash PMIs tomorrow, 9.45 a.m., both services and manufacturing, new home sales on Wednesday, Initial jobless claims and GDP on Thursday, along with durable goods, retail inventories. Friday, we got personal spending, personal income, PCE, core PCE, consumer sentiment. We got a lot of economic data. Throw on top of that ExxonMobil this week, Bristol Myers this week, United Parcel Services this week. That's UPS. Uh, Mr. Softy, Facebook, just a laundry list of companies reporting as well. 
throw Google in there and you know what I'm talking about. Elizabeth, this has been a joy for me. I hope it's been enjoyable for you. It, of course it has. I feel you, like you I paused. rambled a little bit today. No, you don't ramble. Yeah. I no, just, people you know, are here. I to, can I fired up be, this morning. People are here to listen to you. And, you know, I love it when you go down these rabbit holes because you do the work required to understand how to get down them in the first place that a lot of people are unwilling or are, are not knowing enough how to do. So it's wonderful to have you here, EY from SoFi. Well, thank you. It's always wonderful to start my week with you. And we Remember, miss you, Dan. We, we, not really. We got Reese Williams, <laughs> chief strategist at Spouting Rock Asset Management coming up. So listen for that. That's going to be fun. And remember, go to the OK Computer feed and follow it because Dan had a wonderful conversation with Gene Munster. They're talking tech earnings this week. It's dropping tomorrow. We will see you later, folks. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Welcome back to On The Tape Podcast. This is the Off The Tape version of that. We have Reese Williams. He is the chief strategist at Spouting Rock Asset Management. Reese, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. So listen, it's interesting. We, we have a, a market professional here who's been involved over multiple decades. You've seen multiple different cycles here. You've actually worked at multiple different asset management sort of firms here. We'd love to start out a little bit about your background and a little bit about Spouting Rock and the unique kind of structure that you guys have because you've done it all um, in the long, short world here. You also have, I think, a really good sense if we go way back in your career uh, of some of the geopolitical things that are gripping markets, at least over the last couple of years or so. So give us a little sense of your background in the markets and the firm you're at now. 
Sure. Thanks very much for having me. And but w- way back when, I was a uh, journalist for the Times of London, really hired more for my Russian as a translator. I don't want to overstate my Bob Woodward-like credentials. I left just before uh, Gorbachev came in, in the real Soviet Union. And I've actually been back many times. Personally, I've had a sort of a side business in Russia once things opened up in 1990. Went back to grad school because I decided I wanted to make a little bit more money. And I actually wanted to maybe get into to journalism, but business journalism like you guys. And the idea was I'd go learn a little bit on Wall Street and then make the jump. A guy named Michael Lewis thought of that too at the very same time I did and obviously became maybe the most important financial journalist of our lifetime. So I ended up actually really liking Wall Street and I was on the sell side for about 10 years at Prudential. Then I ran a, a small cap and a hedge fund for about 21 years for a place called Columbia Partners, which was uh, sold in 2017. And then at that point, I decided I, I still was too young, had a lot of energy, and I, I went over to Spouting Rock, which is a emerging manager. It really just started five years ago, and they're growing by buying older, experienced people like myself who have smaller funds and want to grow. So it's a boutique manager, and, and we share a back office. I'm missing a morning meeting right now. And so we have a Esprit de Corps, and it, we're based in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, but they have small managers that are really throughout the whole world. We have some in Europe. We have some in Florida. Undergrad at Duke and MA International Economics from Johns Hopkins, which is fascinating. If you think about international economics, it's never been more important. For years, nobody really focused on what was going on necessarily in the the economy of China or Japan or Europe as an entity. But now it's front and center. So speak to your background and how important you think it is in today's world. Everything's so much faster and so much quicker, and guys like you bring news to people so fast that you really have to interpret very quickly what's going on, because in the old days, you had some time, frankly, to, to make decisions and algorithms weren't around and, and, and high-frequency trading, all that kind of thing. So I do think that's important. But And you really think what drove a lot of this market over the last 30-plus years was in 1986 or seven when I got out of school, I had a professor at Johns Hopkins who said, you know, you guys are never going to live as well as your parents. It's just the limits to growth. And oh, and his big thing was computers are going to put white collar workers out of business because you just won't need so many. And what he obviously missed was there would be this huge IT explosion. And actually, a lot, a lot of people would work in IT. And yes, if you repaired typewriters, that probably wasn't such a good business, but created a lot more jobs than it destroyed. And then he also missed the idea that globalization would be so important and you'd have the rise of China and also Eastern Europe falling, the benefits of that had to the world economy. I think that's what drove the 90s and which with that momentum plus the internet drove the the next decades after that. We may be at a a different point right now though. We're seeing uh, maybe the undoing of of a lot of that in in a way. So deglobalization is going to be a big investment theme and and it already is playing out a little bit and it's also very inflationary. We're going to spend some time talking about inflation and your thoughts there. But talk to us a little bit um, about your strategy. You said Spouting Rock is a multi-manager platform Platform, but how do you manage assets at Spouting Rock? What is some of your main strategy, if you will? And let's talk a little bit about the macro because it seems now more than ever, and you just mentioned this kind of inability now to take some time and process information, maybe the way we did back in the day as it relates to investing in the here. It seems like you need things at your fingertips at all times, right? And be able to react quickly or so. So I'm just curious to think, how are you managing money in this environment right now, especially an environment that that for the first time in a very long time, and Guy has mentioned this on our pod on many occasions, it was set it and forget it in a low interest rate environment. But now as an investor, you have to deal with rising
rising interest rates that may stay high, higher for longer, but also inflationary pressures that we haven't felt in a very long time too. In terms of how, how I think the business has changed, I do think I can't think of an idea, enter it into the, my computer system, get my trader to, I can't compete with the high frequency traders. They're, they're too fast. So we're not trying to out trade day to day. It's in, uh, virtually impossible, I think, in this world. What we're trying to do is to find companies that have have a moat, we're getting at some sort of reasonable valuation, and and then hopefully that they can do much better than most analysts expect over a kind of a three to five year period. I would love to say that I'm smart enough to out trade. Think about just for example, we've had Wagovi and Azempic just destroy so many different healthcare stocks. I would have thought way overdone <laughs> and, and, and every day that they go down, regardless of whether they even have a tangential impact or not. Think of what happened to packaged food stocks. They're going to have a, a salad when they go. You, you've had, I would say, super fast algorithmic driving things down. So what we try to do is try to figure out, okay, where's the where's kind of the opportunity? I think at least in that particular case, the healthcare broadly related theme, it's a little bit early, but boy, you've got to get a shopping list because the market is, because it's so news focused and because of the algo guys, stocks get way overdone, frankly, on both sides, both the up and the down. So I think that's a little bit how the business changed. In terms of what I do at Spouting Rock, I actually got so tired of shorts in the zero interest rate environment that I really focus now on, on our long only products because it just, shorts became just a, expensive insurance for most of the post-2008 period. We're tax sensitive. So that's our niches. We think about taxes and I think most managers really don't. We'll get granular in a second, but in terms of the broader picture, and I know this is not a leading question. I can only speak for myself. I'm shocked that as we're sitting here today, given some of the inflation readings we've seen over the last couple of days or so, given the move in bonds, all the different things that we talk about all the time, that the S&P is within a whisper of 4,400. And quite frankly, you know, we're probably 10% or so from an all-time high, which I find remarkable. Are you surprised as well, or does this all seemingly make sense to you? It seems like this market likes to hurt the most people and the most time. And I think people were pretty bared up and pretty nervous. I just think people, at least according to Goldman Sachs Prime Broker, I think the net long is at a very low level relative to history. Seasonally, this is typically a good period of time. You had a real September swoon in, in everything because of what happened with bond yields in the last in the last two, three weeks of the month. And so I think there's just this wall of worry. Then you throw on Israel. So you have a lot of things to, to worry about. And certainly a lot of things could go wrong. But you also have had a brutal 2022. You had a brutal 2023 if you didn't own the Magnificent Seven and a few other related tech stocks. And that's both stocks and bonds. Think about it. People, it's not the averages, as you guys state really well, have, have really masked what the average stock has done. So I do think the market overall is probably okay. And the Magnificent Seven are going to continue to do pretty well because not so much because they have big revenue upside, but because they can control the costs and they have a nice mode and they often have subscription revenue. For that reason, I am in the camp that you're going to get a fourth quarter rally unless we wake up and Tehran is being invaded by Israeli tanks. Obviously, we agree. Bad 2022 correlations across the stock market went to one. And now it's a very different. There's a lot of dispersion in 2023. And so you said you manage small cap. Look at the Russell 2000. Like it's down on the year, right? Versus an S&P that's up 13.5% and a NASDAQ that's up 30%. Okay. 
So right now, I get a bit worried when I hear data like you just quoted from Goldman Sachs Prime Brokerage, that net long exposure is really low. It's really low because for the first time in a long time, maybe it is a function of risk and your ability to get a return on cash, right? So not being invested. And you, I look at all that data that says, look at how many stocks are below their 200 day or their 50, like that sort of thing. And I say, maybe what's going on is masking a lot of risk of a lot of sectors. If I look on the sector level or the single stock level, they're saying that investors are pessimistic. Now you could say you want to be on that side of the fence. So I just worry that at some point, if everyone's so comfortable with the Magnificent Seven, if there is a reason and you're comfortable with the fact that they've cut costs, these were aggressive cost cutters in 2022, cutting jobs and the like, I wonder if there is some sort of like downtick in enterprise demand, whether we're going to see the whole market come crashing down. And I don't mean it's going to crash. I just mean that if you look at how Microsoft and how Apple have acted off of their highs, they're down more than the major indices are, but they got a lot more room to go, especially from a valuation standpoint. So to me, that's something I think it's, I think it's being underappreciated right now. I could see seasonality and a quarter four rally based on rates moderating a little bit. So speak to that a little bit, because what we try to do is look at what is turning into a consensus view and try to pick that apart a little bit, because that's what we think our listeners or our viewers can get the most benefit. Like you, we're not going to outtrade the algos or anything like that. So just curious your thoughts on, on, on thinking about how maybe consensus might be wrong about the Magnificent Seven and the waiting there. Why could they be wrong? Certainly, to your point, if we do go into a, a real recession, so far we haven't had that real recession, you're probably not going to hide in, in, in those stocks. And people have gains in those stocks, to your point. You could sell that. My guess is the economy is decelerating. Look at what the, the supermarkets are telling people aren't beating as much. Look at where these airlines are trading. Despite pretty good September quarter results, so people are looking forward and saying, you know what, it doesn't get any better than this. And things are on the margin are deteriorating. Plus, of course, you have the, the oil prices. And then if this Israeli war just it's for sure it's going to be a hotbed there for a while are people going to want to go to europe this summer like they went last summer on the margin you're going to lose a few people because they don't know that europe's not next to israel i do think that there there is enough deceleration out there and just given the, the very high interest rates that currently exist it's very hard to make new real estate projects pencil out so that's really hard for commercial bank lending because really commercial real estate is their number one engine of growth and has been for the last 15 20 years i can say that things are certainly decelerating. As long as the economy is not crashing, I think these, these Magnificent Seven can hang in despite the valuations. Recently, we saw 10-year yields go north of 4.8%. They've moved lower by about 30 basis points. A lot of people think that might have been it. Capitulatory top in terms of yields. Maybe it's over. I have a different view. It doesn't matter. What are your thoughts about the United States bond market and this recent move in yields? Was that it? And if yields go lower here in a market fashion, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think we four eight seemed a little high. I think now they're probably fair. I don't anticipate them going a lot dramatically lower unless we do get that recession. But clearly, there is a risk that happens. So I think you want to have bonds in your portfolio. They're probably not going to be aggressively in terms of capital appreciation. But I think you can click the coupon. And if there's certainly a recession, the government bond is going to be a nice thing to have in your portfolio. So I think that's the risk. Hard market, though. I'll be telling you, there's so many cross currents. So therefore, I, I think anybody that's so sure here's what's going to happen is just kidding himself. So that's why we're recommending a balanced sort of 60-40 portfolio with the idea being that, hey, the other than the Magnificent Seven, stocks really aren't that expensive. And the bonds at this point are 
giving you a, an attractive coupon and probably are, are not going to be hugely profitable for you in terms of appreciation like over the last 20, 30 years, but at least you'll get the coupon. We spent some time this week talking about Bank America and how they invested in treasuries in 2020 versus, let's say, a JP Morgan. You probably read that Bloomberg article and what Jamie Dimon had to say in October 2020. But right now, you know, 6040 has been tough over the last, call it 18 months, probably right now is a good spot, especially if you feel okay about equity valuations, right? And maybe you get to be a bit more granular on sectors. Again, maybe this is a good time to start averaging into small caps and, and the like, given the underperformance. And it's probably not a bad time to start buying treasuries too with the coupon that you have versus, let's say, any point in the last three years or so, or actually the last 15 years. You mentioned something about what your Johns Hopkins professor got wrong about technology and globalization. Let's talk a little bit about, because AI, we can all agree, whether it's overhyped right now, at least in the stock market and definitely in the private markets. You can't tell me that you can mint companies like OpenAI that have gone from 10 billion to 50 billion to maybe 90 billion in private market valuation or Anthropic that's gone from 2 billion to 30 billion in six months. You know what I mean? Like It's going to be really hard for those companies to grow into those valuations. We can all agree on that. But the technology is going to be massively disruptive. This is a mega trend, mobile 15 years ago, or broadband 20, like that sort of thing, or the internet 25 years ago. We can all agree on that and how it plays out. Who knows who it disrupts, who is going to be the primary beneficiaries that, let, that like here. Let's talk about these two trends, though, how you're thinking about them as an investment manager. Okay, so deglobalization, reshoring might be inflationary in the near term, but it might be a huge boon to, to different industries here in the US or in other parts of the world. And then also how AI factors into that from a productivity standpoint and the like. So I'm just curious, are these two mega trends that you believe in right now and are investing in or at least kicking the tires in and around? Yeah. To your point, it's very tough on the in the core AI plays, especially on the private side, just and to see who's going to, to quote unquote win there. Clearly, Nvidia is a big winner, and if uh, if the analysts are right on 2025 earnings, it's not expensive. It's not a crazy price, I should say, at all. And it looks like they're going to have this window given their software mode to keep the a, a big lead there. But to your point, really, the beneficiaries of AI could be how you can use it to lower your costs and provide the same services. I was on a HubSpot partner call. He was saying that, hey, he's carrying too many people. And with AI, he doesn't need as many people to implement technology solutions when he's doing a, a HubSpot installation. And this has just happened basically this past quarter. How many times is this going to happen throughout the economy that you're going to be able to just get more done with fewer people? And frankly, given the all the bad things that deglobalization is going to cause in terms of higher inflation, this is going to have to be our salvation as an industrialized society that we're going to be able to get more done with fewer people. This is the time of year where people start doing work on what the market does leading into a presidential election. We're in it. We're in the cycle right now. Does that come into focus at all in terms of your work? Do you look at that or is it a bit of a sideshow? I guess it's a bit of a sideshow, but I did read an interesting piece by Oppenheimer's Ari Wald, and he looked at the third year of a presidential term, the fourth quarter since 1980, it's always been up. Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, good economies, bad economies. So there's just something about that in the karma, maybe. I Obviously, seasonally, the fourth quarter is often very good anyway, but it was particularly good in the third year of, of a president's terms. Given all the crazy things going on in Washington with the speaker and the shutdown in November and all the things that could go wrong. It's hard to believe, but I guess you put this into that whole, hey, the market may climb a wall of worry. And over time, some of these strikes are going to get settled both in Hollywood and 
the auto sector. I would anticipate that happening sometime in the fourth quarter. You're going to get some speaker very soon, probably, and you'll get some sort of deal done in November. And maybe the market will respond positively to all that. I'm just hypo- yeah. you know, no, uh, making that, a hypothetical there. That makes perfect sense. And especially, again, if, if, if folks are not getting into the recession camp, Paul Tudor Jones was on CNBC talking about what he thought. And again, we can all make lots of proclamations about the markets. When a guy like that is, is saying something like that is publicly that he thinks is a strong likelihood that we're in a recession in Q1, and the stock market usually starts to discount that. Like I would say the higher we go into Q4 might be the lower we go in Q1, especially if some of the economic data continues to weaken at a time when it doesn't really seem to be some of those inflationary pressures are moderating too much. So we could find ourselves in a stagflationary environment, which just speak to that a little bit, because that won't be good for risk asset valuations, in my opinion. And you just mentioned some of the you know headwinds as it relates to commercial real estate, but also residential real estate. We see residential start to go lower for weird supply-demand dynamics or weirdness about ability for people to trade out of their mortgages and the like here. That negative wealth effect could really lead consumer spending to stop maybe on a dime, if you will, especially at a time where the geopolitical stuff, this is not settling down. Let's just be clear on that, right? It's just, this is here to stay at least for a good part of 2024. So thoughts on that? I know that was a lot. But if we do have a recession here in the US, or at least the readings start to speak to the potential of it, the stock market's going lower. Like That's just to me, because the underpinnings of the stock market right now, I think we've all agreed, are not particularly great. When you look at small caps, you look at the equal weighted S&P and some of the other stuff that we've already talked about in this rate environment. Yeah, no, I, I can't disagree with you. If Paul Tudor Jones is right, and the first quarter is a recession, I think probably the stock market goes down. But at least in your 60-40 portfolio, your, your bonds, your US government bonds, at least, probably help you a little bit. So I'm not saying that, and and clearly there's a lot of risks out there, and it seems like there's maybe more than ever. But at the same time, all those risks are somewhat known. We know about the auto strike. We know about the, the Hollywood strike. We know about the dysfunction in Washington. And maybe this crisis, clearly we have a long term crisis we haven't even talked about in terms of the fiscal deficits right? And where that's going with the demographic trends in this country. So at some point, we're going to have to get serious with figuring out what we do about the entitlement programs, because you can't balance the budget with non-discretionary government spending. All things being said, because of these high interest rates and because of what that means to projecting for future government deficits, I think there's going to be potentially a meeting of minds in Washington that, hey, we really do have to do something with this because obviously we're going to be in a real soup in, in three or four years. But all those things are somewhat tracting in the economy. A big government de- budget deficits in the short term is positive. In the long term, it crowds out by the investment. Talk to us about Spouting Rock and the core values and the value proposition for your clients. We try to do a good job for clients. And Spouting Rock is different managers. So I can speak to, to myself. We're really focused on the, the high net worth individual. We also have currently a, a partnership with a minority-based firm where we're going to actually help like students at Duke University with their NIL money. These are t- uh, two Duke football players I've joined up with, and that's going to be advising some of these individuals. And athletes haven't necessarily been given the best financial advice. We have a, a real niche focus is what I would say at Spouting Rock. We also have managers that 
do international money and are based in Europe. We have managers that are global macro. It's not a one size fits all place. We have a variety of, of strategies and a variety of mandates. And we have some sort of pension oriented and some individual oriented. And really we have a great common back office and a good spree decor and we exchange ideas. And so it's almost like our weekly meetings. There's a guy in Australia, there's three guys in Europe, there's guys in Asia. We have people all over the world and it's, it's you get that benefit of that cross-pollination. We really enjoyed talking to you, Reese, And it seems like a really interesting platform with uh, very diverse ideas. So listen, great macro conversation, great conversation about the markets and of course, the geopolitical situation does seem to be the one thing that was going to continue to be a headwind to investors going forward, especially because what we talked about on the kind of rate environment, the inflationary environment, what we learned from the war in, in Ukraine over the last, call it, 18 months to two years. Listen, we appreciate your commentary. We appreciate the breakdown of your strategy. We hope you'll come back. That's Reese Williams. He is the chief strategist at Spouting Rock Asset Management. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed talking to you guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.